0: Yahweh, just thank you for this night coming back together for another book of your Bible, and I pray that you just give me the words and the insights to speak clearly and accurately and insightful to what you have put in your gospel of Luke. and I pray that you give everyone here the eyes to see and the ears to hear and allow it to really penetrate into their hearts and to their minds. And not just for the sake of knowledge, but for transformation. And I know that many of us have been through multiple Luke studies throughout our life, but I just know that like layering upon layering upon layering is beneficial for our memory, for our understanding and for our application. In some ways, familiar, as people come to the Word of God, and they are reminded of things, but as well that we can, you will reveal new things to us. Shed new light, point out new directions, and give us a new understanding of how this applies to our life. In Jesus' name, Amen. This is the Gospel of Luke. To give you a little background, there are obviously four Gospels of the life of Christ. And there's three that are called what's called the Synoptic Gospels Gospels, and then there's John. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what's called synoptic gospels and they're synoptic as in the sense of synonymous. They parallel each other very well. They tell a lot of the same stories, slightly different orders, and they add a few extra stories that the one doesn't, and vice versa and all that kind of stuff. But relatively speaking, they're very similar to each other. But they come in it from three different perspectives. John is drastically different. He has similar ideas and stories in there, but vastly covering a lot of things that the other gospel writers didn't cover. To kind of give you an understanding, the gospel of Mark is the first gospel you ever written, even though Matthew comes first in our Bibles. So Mark was written, and Mark was most likely writing with Peter as his primary witness. Most scholars believe that this is Peter's understanding of Jesus' life, being written through the penmanship of Mark. And Mark is a Jew. Peter is a Jew. And Mark is a and you kind of feel it because Peter is like got a he's ADHD, like through the roof. His attention span is small. He's quick to say things. Granted the Holy Spirit refined him tremendously in Acts two when it came into him. And he turns into this phenomenal speech giver and disciple and all that kind of stuff. But Mark is very quick. It's one of the shortest Gospels, and Mark's favorite word is immediately. He's, he's, it's really just kind of a bam, 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 really quick. You're moving very quickly through this story. And what Mark is mostly emphasizing is that Jesus is the suffering servant. He's the high priest that Israel has been awaiting for, even though they didn't know they were supposed to be awaiting it, but we'll talk about that later. And he is the suffering servant, or Frodo, and the Lord of the Rings, who will bear the sins of the world and and suffer for humanity on their behalf. And that's his main focus and emphasis. If you think of the Gospels as four different people sitting on four different street corners, and if you watch a a car accident, everybody's going to see the exact same car accident, but they're going to have slightly different perspectives, not only from the angle that they can see it from. Maybe one person sees the person flying out of the car, even though that's twisted. And everybody else misses that because it's behind the other car and they don't quite see it. And so they're going to see things differently from different angles, but they're also going to see it through their personality and their perspective. And that's why you have the Gospels. And what the FBI has done, there was actually an FBI agent that did this. There's about 20% that is not like where Mark will say one thing and Luke will say the same story, but it's off by 20% and the FBI has determined through lots of study in the CIA that when they're interrogating people in separate rooms to figure out what happened they're looking for about 25 percent discrepancies if the stories are exact 100 percent it communicates the idea that they all got together and planned it all out if there's way too many discrepancies then somebody's lying and so they're looking for about 25 percent discrepancies in there because that allows for different perspectives and personalities and that kind of stuff. It's interesting that this person did this, and the Gospels pretty much came to that. They measure what is similar and what is not similar. Mark is emphasizing that. Then Matthew comes along. Matthew is also known as Levi. He's the tax collector who is brought into Jesus' discipleship. And he is more long-winded. His, he's got 28 chapters um, that talk about the Gospels. And what he's doing is he's emphasizing Jesus the king, the long-awaited king. And for the Jews and for the prophecies, Messiah, which is the Hebrew word, and Christ, which is the Greek version of Messiah, is emphasizing first and foremost kingship and defeating of political enemies and establishing Israel as a dominant empire. And so Matthew is emphasizing, your king, your long-awaited Davidic king has finally come. And he's going to bring an end to the dominion of world powers over the earth. And that's what he's strongly emphasizing. So in a metaphorical sense, Mark is emphasizing the suffering ox who is sacrificed on the altar. And Matthew is emphasizing Jesus the lion, the king. Luke comes along, and he's a Gentile. He's a Roman. He's a Greek. He was not one of the disciples of Jesus, but he was a doctor. Now you have to remember, a doctor at that time probably means more of he went through um, law school and then learned a little bit of medical stuff on the side because medicine wasn't very well developed in the late teen, early 1900s of America, let alone in the ancient world. So most people, what they would do is they would go through a law school And they were gifted in details and scribe and analytical thinking and that kind of stuff. And then they would learn some medical stuff, but it was really um, deducting what would be the problem and how to treat it. And so he thinks like a lawyer, he writes like a lawyer, he analyzes like a lawyer. And he probably interviewed more people than anybody else had and really researched things. And he'll say that even in chapter 1. He is emphasizing Jesus as the perfect and wisest human. He's emphasizing, because for the Greeks and the Romans, the measure of humanity is intellect. Okay? Reason is everything. If you were here for mystery religions, and my compare religions, reason, intellect, logic is everything. This is why John begins with, in the beginning was the logos, or the word. And the logos was with God, and logos was God. Because logos means thinking, rational words. And the Greeks pray, praise they value that higher than everything else. In fact, the Greeks in Athens would get on top of the Agora or the Acropolis, and they would actually give speeches like your speech class or debates, and they would intentionally make up crap and see how well they could convince people to prove how great of an orator they were and how rational they can make even the most irrational thing. That's how much they praise. Reason and logic and convincing people and debating people is like, if you can give them fake news and buy into it, then you're a master. And that was the idea. This is why Paul also got laughed off out of Athens, because he was a great writer and a thinker, but not a great speaker. This was not good for him. So Luke is emphasizing that, that Jesus is the, the wisest, greatest teacher. And that's what we're going to see here. We're going to see Jesus the teacher Jesus who schools the Pharisees and owns them in every conversation. Jesus who knows the law better than anybody else. Jesus who knows how to fix problems better than anybody else. And Jesus who's the perfect human who can actually pay for your sins. That's Luke's emphasis. And he's writing to a Greek and Gentile audience, which means he doesn't really highlight prophecy that much, fulfillment of prophecy as much as Matthew does. He uses different words Instead of like maybe rabbi, he would use um, expert in the law um, because the Greeks and the Gentiles wouldn't see those words in the same way. John comes along much later, and he's emphasizing Jesus divine as the God and who comes and who is far more powerful, eternal past, eternal future, who can actually conquer sin, death, death and the grave, and the devil, and all that kind of stuff. And so he's emphasizing the divinity of Jesus. So with all four of these gospel writers, you're you're getting all perspectives. You're getting all perspectives. This is Pretty much all scholars agree that Luke wrote this gospel. It's one of the very few books that are not debated. Three of the gospels are not debated in some of Paul's letters, um, but very few books. And he is emphasizing this, and he's writing to a man by the name of Theophilus. Some people argue that Theophilus is a metaphorical title um, because it means friend of God or dear to God. And Theo meaning God. And that this is, he just writing to a general audience that's a friend of God. Most scholars, however, argue that Theophilus is actually a, a Roman or Greek official and has political power and influence and has either become a Christian and doesn't know much about Judaism or Christianity in the world at this time or has or is incredibly sympathetic to Christianity in some kind of a way and what you need to understand is because we also know that he writes the Theophilus in the book of Acts. Acts is Luke's sequel. It's very clear that he wrote Acts and most likely he wrote Luke in the first part of him. So in the book of Acts, Luke meets up with Paul about halfway through the book of Acts. Paul comes in about a fourth of the way into the book of Acts, and Luke hooks up with them somewhere around a half, not literally. And he begins to travel with um, Paul and his missionary journeys and, of recording all these things. That would allow him to talk to a lot of people who saw Jesus. As he's traveling with Paul, as the disciples are scattered throughout the world, he'd be hooking up with them because that's Paul's intentionality is to go and see these people and help promote the church and support them and encouraging them, especially with donations that he's collecting. And so this would give him plenty of opportunities to interview people. And so somewhere in that first part of the journey, he probably wrote Luke, and towards the end of the journey, at the end of Acts, he probably wrote the book of Acts, obviously, because Acts has to be done for him to actually have written it. This is the sequel. And most likely, he's probably trying to convince Theophilus to exempt Christians from persecution. At this time period, the Roman government is persecuting the Christians significantly. And in the Roman Empire, there was this thing called the Pax Ramona, and the Pax Ramona is a Latin phrase meaning the peace of Rome. And the Pax Ramona, Ramona was established by Caesar Augustus. He was originally called Octavian. And then when he became emperor, he changed himself, his name to Caesar Augustus, meaning um, the divine one, um, basically. And then he implemented emperor worship. And everybody had to worship him as a god. And that wasn't a big deal for most Romans. for all Romans and all Greeks because they worshiped a plethora of gods. And they worshiped a plethora of humans. And if you wanted rain, you would pray to that god. And if you wanted healthy crops, you would pray to this god. And if you want success financially, you pray to this god. Just like if you want this, you go to a lawyer. If you want that, you go to a doctor. If you want this, you go to a businessman. But they were worshiped. They were gods. And so they just had a they didn't have a problem just adding another one to the list and give a little incense and in tribute to Caesar Augustus. The Jews had a huge problem with all of that, and Rome required worship. But Rome, re- um, Caesar Augustus, valued peace above all other things. Rome had come out of multiple civil wars, and they had come out of many conquests. And by the time Caesar Augustus came along, they are pretty much tired of the civil wars and the assassinations and the backstabbing. Think Julius Caesar and Brutus and Cassius and Mark Antony and Cleopatra, all that. They had just come out of that. Augustus was Julius Caesar's nephew. And so he emphasized the peace of Rome. And he maintained peace at the highest cost. And nothing was allowed to disrupt the peace. Before you think, oh, that's awesome, utopian society, right? No, 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 no. It was peace under the boot of Rome's heel. The idea is we're going to maintain the peace, and if anyone disrupts the peace, we are going to crush them so hard, so quickly, so violently, that no one will ever think to do it. And we will invent the most humiliating, most excruciating, the most long-drawn-out human death penalty that humanity has ever come up with, according to all historians and doctors, called the crucifixion. Now, it's been around for a while, but they'll perfect it. A crucifixion takes about a week or two for you to die on the cross. Jesus was faster because he was flogged as well, but we'll talk about that much later. They would violently and publicly crush you in military conquest or crucify you in the case of Spartacus, 300 people along the road, um, for you to all see, don't disrupt the peace. The problem was, the Jews didn't care about that. They were the kind of people that no matter how many times you ground them, slapped them, beat them physically, kill them, they kept rebelling against Rome when it came to, we shall not worship any other gods except for Yahweh. Most other things, they, they cowered and they hid. But Israel had gone into exile For many years because they worshipped other gods. And when they came out, they were determined to never go into exile again. Even if it meant dying because Rome was going to kill you for not worshipping idols. And so because Caesar Augustus realized this, he decided to exempt them from emperor worship and polytheistic worship in order to maintain the peace. And Israel was so little, like the size of New Jersey with the population of New Jersey, that it wasn't worth really trying to bend them to his will. And they weren't. it wasn't going to ripple out through the Roman Empire because nobody else cared about polytheism or anti-polytheism. So he exempted them. So what Luke is doing is he's trying to write to Theophilus to try to help Theophilus understand that Christianity is not a new religion, it's not a new sect, it's not a new spinoff, it's not something brand new, but it is rooted in the First Testament. It is what God intended. And it's been around. And they're very much connected to the Jews and the God that they worship, Yahweh and the prophecies that they're looking forward to, and the awaited Messiah that has come. And, and he's trying to let them know Christianity is Judaism, so to speak. And it's the most intentional, fulfilling sense. And to exempt Christians from persecution. Now, obviously we know that didn't work. And they would not be exempt from persecution until um, Constantine came along in the 250s, who did not make Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, no matter how much History Channel wants to tell you that. He only exempted Christians from persecution, and that's it, because he wanted their votes, he wanted their money. It was a political move. It was not going to be until the late 300s that an emperor by the name of um, Theodotus will come along and actually make Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. So this is agenda. So Acts was probably written around 60 to 62 AD. So that puts Luke around 57 to 59 AD. Setting. Where are we at now? Now, a little side note is, for many of you, you've taken the intertestamental history class. And if you haven't, I would strongly recommend that you go through that. I think it's only about like six hours long, so one of the things that that study does is it takes you from the First Testament, the Old Testament, all the way to the Second Testament, New Testament. The First Testament covers thousands of years in Jewish history, and it ends around 431 B.C. and with the last prophet Malachi. And he kind of leaves you with this hope that a Messiah will come one day and a figure like Elijah will pave the way for that coming, of the Messiah. And then where they've had prophets for thousands of years, the prophets go completely silent. And for over 400 years, not one word of God comes to the people. They're oppressed by the Greeks and then the Romans and all that kind of stuff. And it covers that time period. Then you get into the First Testament and all of a sudden the Gospels you have Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and the Roman Empire and and Judaism looks a lot different. It's a lot more politically powerful than it ever has been for a while. That study just kind of takes you through the transitions that are happening in those 400 years. It explains how you get from the first to the second testament. And what it really does is it helps you understand Why we have Caesar Augustus and and Pilate and all that kind of stuff. So it explains all that kind of stuff. So I would recommend that you go through that. And it will give you a much better understanding of Pharisees, Sadducees, and Zealots who we're not really going to dive into in a deep sense here because I've already done it. The First Testament ends with Israel's failure to obey Yahweh. They have committed two major sins over and over and over again throughout the book of Saint, well judges Samuel and Kings and that is their idolatry and their lack of justice they have promoted corruption in the law courts corruption in the government corruption in the way they treat the poor and the, the foreigners and all that kind of stuff and God takes them in exile he says because they have robbed so many people of their future, their homes, their lands and, and peace and compassion he's going to rob them of it all and he takes them into exile. And that's the, all the prophets prophesy that coming exile. It's fulfilled as the prophets come to an end. And they go in exile. And God promised through all the prophets that one day he would bring a Messiah. That would bring them back into the promised land and end their exile. And he would establish Israel as the dominant empire over the world. He would create peace inside that empire, destroy all the enemies of God, destroy all sin and all evil, and all people from all nations, all ethnicities, all tribes, all languages, and all genders, and all physical ailments, lame, cripple, all that kind of stuff, these Old Testament terms, would all be flooding into this new Jerusalem, slash temple, slash cosmic mountain, slash the kingdom of God. And this was prophesied. And so this is where it ends. So at the end of the exile, they come back, and under the leadership of um, Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, which is recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they come back and they rebuild the temple, and it's pathetic. And the glory of God doesn't return back to the temple. And the prophets kind of come back, but they're still ripping Israel a new one. And because Israel really hasn't changed, they're still sinful. And this is what Moses said to back before he died. Like, you are stiff-necked, hard-hearted people, and you will never, ever be truly obedient because you truly love God and you're willing and you're able to do it until God comes and circumcise your heart. And that cannot be possible without the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not possible in the indwelling, at least, until Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. When they come back, nothing changes. In fact, the glory of God doesn't return. And they're still oppressed by foreign enemies. And at this point, they realize that exile is more than just being kicked out of the land. Exile is not having the presence of God. Exile is not having the Messiah come. Exile is still being oppressed. Exile goes on for 400 years. And during that time period, they are beaten down by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and then the First Testament ends, and then they're beaten down by the Persians and the Greeks, and then Rome come and makes everybody else look like child's play. And over this time, they really begin to wait for the Messiah. Some compromise their faith and become just like the Romans and the Greeks in their culture many hold on to it and they begin to emphasize and hold on to the law because they don't ever want to go back into exile again and they want to do everything obediently that they possibly can in order to encourage the messiah to come and they begin to hold on to and recite the prophecies of the messiah and the law to not go into exile and the prophecies of the messiah become the two things that they hold on to the most and they get oppressed and they get crucified, and they get beaten down for 400 years, and they hold on to those two things tighter and tighter and tighter as each decade goes by, awaiting this coming Messiah. This is where we come into the picture. It has been 400 years. They have been on under far greater impression than most people in all of human history have been. And I don't mean like a far greater severe oppression, but the severity and the length of time put together is tremendous and they have they are awaiting the messiah so this is the background to luke okay, any questions introductions always like drinking from the fire hose but this is why it's recorded so you can go back and listen that's why i have notes what is the purpose of the book of luke the first more first and primary purpose of the book of luke is to explain how Yahweh through his son will accomplish this decisive act of deliverance and redemption for all humanity and how this good news will spread through the world through his witnesses with the empowerment and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Luke is trying to communicate to you how Jesus is the one that God is going to use to fulfill all of his prophecies to execute his plan of redemption for the world, and that it is his disciples who will become the witnesses to the rest of the world who will only be able to do this through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Luke emphasizes the Holy Spirit probably more than any other gospel writer, and he sees the Holy Spirit as intrinsically significant and absolutely essential to everything, that is happening in the Gospels and in Jesus' life. And Jesus is often mentioned as being led by the Spirit, probably more than any other Gospel writer. And he sees this significant because Luke is also writing from the unique perspective of traveling around with Paul and seeing all the things that the disciples are doing as they in Matthew's Great Commission, chapter 28, going out into the world and making disciples of all men, women, and children to all the ends of the earth. And then Acts begins with that great commission again, saying, wait here in Jerusalem until I give you the Holy Spirit, who will give you the power to be my witnesses. And so Luke has this at the forefront of his mind. And even though the Holy Spirit's not always there, it will be more emphasized in the first four or five chapters than any other chapter in the book, because the assumption is he's repeated enough times that you should assume from this point on the Holy Spirit is what's guiding Jesus. And it is the absolute power for everything. And that this Holy Spirit working through Christ and Christ executing the plan of God is what is going to redeem the world. This is his first and primary purpose. That Christ is the tool that is executing God's long thousand-year prophecy plan of redemption. And it is made possible through the empowerment, the guidance, and the leading of the Holy Spirit who will then Go into the disciples so that you see the disciples as the continuation of Jesus' ministry and power and not a new thing that is happening. And that is Luke's primary purpose that he's recording here. The, one of the very few times that he ties back into the First Testament is right in the beginning, the first couple of chapters, because he's trying to emphasize that Jesus is not a new plan. This is not plan B or plan C for God. This is plan A. There is no plan B or C with God. He doesn't mess up and things don't catch him off guard. This is plan A for God and has been for thousands of years. And Jesus is plan A. He is what is doing this. This is not a new plan. This is not a new idea that God has come up with. But this is the continuation of God's work from the first testament. And this is what he's emphasizing. The Old Covenant, or the Mosaic Covenant, has been speaking of this, and he has finally arrived. And his work on the cross and the New Covenant are firmly rooted in the Abrahamic Covenant. When Luke begins with Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah that the First Testament has been talking about for so long, he is the redemption of humanity, that will allow you to establish that. By the time we get to the temptation of Christ, you'll be like, Oh, yes, he is. Then when he ends the gospel with Jesus breaking the bread and, drink, and drinking the wine and saying, this is my body and my blood for a new covenant, it will help you understand that this new covenant is not a new idea with God, but this is everything that the old Mosaic covenant has been pointing towards. Now, we'll talk about that in a lot more detail as we go through the gospels. Luke's second purpose is to demonstrate how the Gentiles are part of the new covenant people that Jesus established through his death and resurrection. Luke emphasizes the Gentiles a lot because he's a Gentile as he's writing. And the prophecies over and over and over again in Micah chapter 2 and in Isaiah chapter 4 and many, many other places constantly talked about that on that day, God will establish His city on His cosmic mountain. Now, remember, cosmic mountain is the, the the kingdom of God. It's where God dwells. It's where God builds His kingdom. It's where everything is good. There's no sin, and everything is um, in harmony. And that's the cosmic mountain. And He promises. And the cosmic mountain was the Garden of Eden, and we lost that access. And God promises in the prophets that one day he will establish his cosmic mountain in our physical material realm again one day. And God will dwell on that cosmic mountain. And just like the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were on or in the cosmic mountain with God. Unlike all the other pagan gods, the cosmic mountain is always some mountain way, way, way far away, out in the middle of nowhere like the Tibetan Um, monasteries and that kind of stuff disconnected or Mount Olympus it's high up and horizontally disconnected from people and humans are never allowed there but God's cosmic mountain was a flat garden where he dwelt with humans right in the midst of them and this is why John begins his gospel in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word he actually doesn't say dwelt with us he says tabernacled with us meaning the tabernacle is a tent among the people, just like the Garden of Eden, and so is Jesus. He is God among us, or Emmanuel. This is what he's emphasizing here, is that there will come a day where God will reestablish this cosmic mountain on earth. And not only will it be for Israel, but all peoples of all nations, all languages, all ethnicities, will come flocking to the mountain, and they'll all be accepted, and they'll all enter, and they'll all be the people of God. And this is what Luke is envisioning. He's saying this is being fulfilled through Christ. And we're going to see that. He's going to go to the women. He's going to go to the sick. He's going to go to the crippled. He's going to go to the Gentiles. He's going to go to the the tax collectors and the sinners. All these people that were not accepted by the Jews by the time we get to the Gospels. And even the First Testament, we see the Jews missing this. Over and over and over again, the First Testament emphasizes that the the actual non-Jewish people actually seem to get it and appreciate God more than the Jewish people. And over and over we're told about the people, when they leave Egypt, the Jews leave, but we're told a, a multitude of Egyptians also went with Israel. And they're all called Israelites. Even though a lot of them were not ethnically descendants of Abraham, they were all called Israelites by faith. And so then we see Rahab, who is a Canaanite, being entered into the, the, the covenant community. We see Mo, um, Ruth, who is a Moabite, being entered in the covenant community. We see Tamar in chapter 38 of Genesis marrying into Judah's line, who is a Canaanite. And all three of these women make it into the genealogy of Christ, which means Christ wasn't 100% ethnically Jewish himself. He was part Gentile and part Jewish himself. It makes sense that he would redeem both into himself. And then we see lots of foreigners show up over and over again. And they're always showing up, metaphorically and literally. The Jews, We see Ittai the Gittite, who has more faith than David. We see Uriah the Hittite, who is more obedient than David is on that night. We see Orana the Jebusite, who is willing to give up his hill as a sacrifice to God through David's works and that kind of stuff. And we see these people over and over again. And Luke is trying to say, this is what God has been doing for thousands and thousands of years, even though the Jews didn't really join in on it. And now that the ultimate Israel, Jesus, is here... This is what he's going to do, include all people. And so this is his secondary purpose as it goes through here. And for Luke, the real tragedy is actually not the death of Christ, because it ends in the resurrection and the redemption of all humanity. The real tragedy in Luke's gospel is that the Jews don't get on board with these two purposes. And that not only do they reject their long-awaited Messiah who redeemed the world, first purpose, but they also reject his desire to bring the Gentiles into the body, the second purpose. The real tragedy in the Gospel of Luke is that the Jews who held on to the prophecies more than anybody else are the ones who reject them when they're fulfilled more than anybody else. And that's the tragedy in the Gospel of Luke. These are the two primary purposes of the gospel. Luke.